0: Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We are a church in the Milwaukee Oak Grove and Gladstone area that meets every Sunday morning online and in person at 10:30 a.m. Now, obviously online you could be here whenever. We have audio-only versions that are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and we're aware that you're probably listening sometime in the future. If that's you, though, feel free to uh, check in. Let us know that you're listening. Maybe write a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, If you're watching on our Facebook or our website, faithonhill.com, in the video version, say hello in the chat. Feel free to share the video on our Facebook. Um, We also gather throughout the week in small groups and uh, those have been on pause for the summer uh, but we will be restarting those here in the fall so if you are interested in being part of a small group you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com or reach out to me personally adam at faithonhill.com and we can get you connected with the information for being part of a small group setting. Uh, Also today is, uh, this weekend is Labor Day weekend and Uh, I would just encourage people to do two things, uh, maybe three. But the first I would encourage you to do is say thank you to people who have labored for you. Uh, Maybe it's a parent, a grandparent, maybe it's a spouse, uh, somebody who has labored, uh, who has worked, and and that has provided benefit for your life. Uh, I think that's a great thing to do on Labor Day weekend. The next thing I would encourage people to do is to be thankful For where we are at. You know, when you hear stories about uh, working conditions in other parts of the world and working conditions in the past here in America, I'm thankful for for the times that we live in. I'm also thankful for those who have labored on our behalf during this pandemic Doctors, nurses, hospital and, and medical staff of all kinds, bus drivers who have kept the TriMet going, uh, all kinds of frontline and first respond w- responders, uh, grocery store workers, etc. So you should be thankful for them and maybe tell them thank you. Last of all, Labor Day weekend is kind of the last hurrah of summer. It's the last pause before uh, school starts. Enjoy a day of rest. Rest is an incredibly biblical concept, so for whatever that looks like for you, whether it's chilling and having a barbecue, whether it's going for a hike, whatever rest looks like for you, I'd encourage you to rest on this Labor Day weekend. If you have a Bible, open to the book of 3 John as we continue our study of the 10 least read books of the Bible, and this week we'll be talking about something that nobody cares about until it matters. Let's study God's Word together. Well, as you are opening your Bibles to the book of 3 John, the very end of our Bibles, um, we are about to worship God. Now, that may surprise you. You might say, oh, is he going to pull out a guitar or a piano? Are we going to sing together? We in America often limit worship to just singing, although I love singing with the church family. Worship is giving God praise, adoration, We worship the Lord, our God, with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So sometimes I have worshipped God through physical acts of service, you know, um, going and serving somewhere, being part of something, a mission trip, uh, a soup kitchen, something like that. Uh, Sometimes we worship God, yes, through singing. And it's one of the things that I love about gathering together in person is to sing with the church. We're going to worship the Lord at the end of our time together through prayer, prayer, All of these things are part of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we worship through giving. If you want to give, you can go to faithonhill.com slash give. Uh, We worship through serving. We worship through all kinds of different ways. We also worship through studying the Word of God. We hear the Word of God. We receive the Word of God. And then we live by the Word of God. And so let's worship the Lord together as we read the book of 3 John. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. My dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even as they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans." We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people, so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diatrophanes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome other believers, He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is God's word. Now, you might recognize some similarities in things that are said or some um, points of emphasis from last week's study of 2 John. Again, uh, it's assumed or it's been held that this was written by John the Apostle, who was, you know, Peter, James, John, one of the 12 disciples, that he was well advanced in age, probably in his early 90s or late 80s, living in the city of Ephesus in what is now Turkey in the Mediterranean. And he was writing during a time of persecution, so he's keeping things kind of in code. Uh, the name, the elders, the friends here greet the friends there. It's, it's very kind of vague. Um, in fact, it's interesting that that he writes uh, Gaius's name instead of a code name, as he did in 2 John. Now, each week as er, we go through a new book of the 10 least read books of the Bible, one of the questions we're asking is, why is it the least read? The book of 3 John is the second least read book in the whole New Testament. And it is the fourth least read book in the whole Bible. Why is that? Well, I think one of it has to do... One of the reasons is that it's the shortest book in the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, 3 John is the shortest book in the whole Bible. Blink and you miss it. It's like one of those little towns. Uh, you know, you, if you're on a road trip somewhere and then you go through this little town, population 47, and you're like, who lives here? What kind of person or life happens here? And, and then you just... You move on a second later, and you're out of town and on continuing on your journey, and that's how Third John might feel. I, I think I said this last week, but it's true for both of these, is that all of the 10 least read books of the Bible are towards the end of either the Old Testament or the New Testament. And in the case of the New Testament books, they don't particularly have verses that are quotable. They don't have verses, you're not going to quote, you know, on like a verse of the day calendar, you know, verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diatrophanes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. That doesn't get on the verse of the day app. Uh, It's not going to be put in the Our Daily Bread or or some kind of devotional. I'm not knocking devotionals at all. I'm just saying they tend to go to the same very quotable verses from more well-known books of the Bible. And I think there is a good reminder that we ourselves are responsible for our own engagement with the Word of God. I believe that God has raised up teachers in the church, people who teach the Bible, who speak words of encouragement or exhortation or challenge or sometimes correction to the church, people who write blogs, people who write books, people who create podcasts or video content, people who teach the Bible like like pastors every week. I believe that there is a specific calling that God gives people to teach. And I believe personally as a pastor that one of my responsibilities is to give the full picture of the Word of God, which is why we're doing a look through the 10 least read books, because I want to make sure that people in under my teaching have the fullest picture they can have but i'm responsible for myself and you're responsible for you and if a devotional isn't going to cover the whole bible if a preacher isn't going to cover the whole bible if a podcast isn't then i have a responsibility to get that myself okay i have a responsibility to learn and study myself and maybe it's uh, you know you, you just say well i just go through this bible reading plan but the bible reading plan it just covers other things uh, or I have a responsibility that it's not the Bible reading plan's fault. It's my own challenge and, and obligation to make sure that I am engaging with the widest possible spread of the Word of God. So what's happening here in 3 John? He's writing to this guy named Gaius, and Gaius has a ministry. Uh, specifically, it seems his ministry is to traveling Christians. Now, I've taken a few long drives this summer. Uh, you, know, you know, earlier in August, we went to Spokane and, and saw uh, I have a cousin that lives there with her family. and so we we saw some family. Uh, we you know dro- drove out last week to the coast and camped out there. Um, so we've we've kind of driven around. and you don't have uh, it's not hard to find a place to stay. You can find a campsite. Uh, you can find a hotel. you know, cars get you there real fast. But back in the day, you know, when John's writing in the first century, they don't have cars. They don't have uh, you know, major highways. And so somebody would come into town, and it was the obligation of, of that town or that city to be hospitable to people. Hospitality in, in the ancient world, is, and, and in some places still today, is one of the highest orders. You, you see this all through the Bible, where the idea of not being hospitable to somebody is just abhorrent you would never dream of showing a lack of hospitality and so what's going on is these christian travelers um, are coming to a place and and they need a place to stay and so gaius seems to have a ministry he's letting people stay in their his house he's helping to provide for them Uh, if they're traveling as missionaries or uh, traveling preachers he he helps provision them for their journey and i've i've experienced this myself Uh, some of this has to do with geographically where you're located. We don't know where Gaius lived, but it's not unreasonable to presume that his town or village was on a major travel route. Um, uh, Maybe he was in a port city. Maybe he was along a a really common road. We we don't know. I do know when I lived in England, uh, I had an apartment very close to the airport and the airport in Manchester is one of the busiest airports in Europe. Uh, it's the second busiest airport in England. It, it's the main Northern airport. And so I would, you know, get a call or an email sometimes from, uh, pastors in uh, other parts of the north and they'd say, hey, um, you know, I, I need to fly here or somebody in my church is taking a trip here. Can they park their car at your apartment? Because I had a parking space, but I didn't have a car. And I'd say, yeah, sure. And so it wasn't uncommon for, for somebody to come and park their car there. It was just a kindness that I could show. Uh, churches in, in Southern California uh, have shown great hospitality to church groups that want to come and minister in Mexico. Um, and I've just randomly called, I remember, uh, I was doing a trip down to Mexico and we needed a place to stay because we were going to cross back into America kind of late. And so we needed a place to stay, get some sleep and then make the drive home. And so I just randomly called up some churches down near the border in, in the same network of churches that I was a part of. And I said, Hey, we're from this church up here. And you know, we're doing this. Can we just crash on your, your youth group floor? You know, you have a youth room, you have a you have a multi-purpose room. Can we just get our sleeping bags and, and sleep on your floor? And they said, yeah, sure, that's no problem. I remember one church, though, in 2005, I believe, 2004, 2005, and um, this church in Vista, California, which is uh, right by San Diego. And they said, yeah, you can sleep on our youth group floor. So we showed up. Um, they had a, uh, a night service. It was like a Wednesday night or something. They had a Wednesday night service and people at the church, we were just talking with them and they heard, oh, hey, there's this group and they're going to sleep on our youth group floor. And one of the guys in the church says, that's not right because we weren't a large group. I think there was about eight of us. It was a very small trip. And so all of a sudden, the next thing I know We are going to the houses of people in the church. And instead of sleeping on an uncomfortable church floor, I was sleeping in a very comfortable house with this million-dollar view overlooking San Diego. And it was just the kindness of a Christian brother who opened up his home to us. And so all of the guys in the group went and stayed with him, and the gals in the group went and stayed with this other family, and we were shown kindness. That's what Gaius was doing. Here's the problem. Even though he is doing good things and things that you would like, Apparently, and I hesitate to call him the pastor of the church in his town, but whoever was the leader of the church in his town was this guy named Diotrophenes. And it says that he loves to be first. And John says that he rejects the apostles' teaching. And it's not that he's just rejecting the Bible, but the apostles, at least John, was still very much alive. And so he's rejecting them. And then not only that, but anyone who is an outsider, a traveling brother or sister in Christ, they are not welcome in that church. Can you imagine that? If somebody was on vacation, let's say that you were on vacation and you, you're you in Hawaii, you're in Florida, you're, you're down in San Diego, wherever you're at. You're on vacation and you say, hey, I'm going to go find a church here to go to. It's Sunday morning. I'm going to check out this church, see what church is like in this town. And then the church says, no, we don't welcome outsiders. You're from Oregon we don't want you here. That'd be insane. But that's what was going on. He loved to be first, so he rejects the apostles' teaching. Anyone who is an outsider is not welcome. And anybody who does welcome outsiders is kicked out. It's actually pretty reasonable to assume that at this point, Gaius has been kicked out of his church because he is doing good. The big idea for today is that nobody cares until it matters. And what I want to talk about is healthy church government and church leadership. And I'm going to tell you that nobody cares. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever been through a major natural disaster. You know, there was this big hurricane that hit the Gulf, and then it went up into New York and New Jersey, and there was flooding. I bet there's a bunch of people that just found out they didn't have flood insurance. I, I lived through several years ago, we were living in California, and we lived through a major earthquake. And all of a sudden, you find out, oh, we don't have earthquake insurance. That's a very expensive thing. It's very different. And so you find out, though, this thing that you didn't care about, you just glanced at your renter's insurance policy, and then you signed it, and then you didn't read the fine print until it matters, and then you find out you don't have it. Now, we were very fortunate in that earthquake, and we didn't lose a lot. Some people lost a whole lot more. But it's this thing that you don't care about until it matters. And I've found the same is true for talking about church government. And you think, oh, that's just something that church nerds, pastors, seminary students care about. Honestly, I have found that some of the people who care the least about talking about healthy church leadership is pastors. I have been in boardrooms and conference rooms, official meetings. I have been in unofficial meetings around, you know, coffee shop tables and, you uh, in between meetings at a conference or whatever. And I've talked to other church leaders and they just seem to not care about it. They haven't thought deeply about it. Or if you say, how do, how do you structure your, your church's leadership? And they're just honest and say, we copied and pasted the church that we were a part of before we started our new church and we just copied and pasted their thing and we just didn't think about it. And it, you know, no problems. Because nobody cares until it is important. Nobody cares until something goes wrong. It's very possible that nobody had really thought through how their church was led until this guy Diatrophanes becomes the leader and he starts to cause all kinds of trouble. So what's happening there is that they have bad leadership, unhealthy leadership, unbiblical leadership, toxic leadership, and it is causing pain for the people in that church, and it is stopping or hindering the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ in that community. So how should the church be organized? What would prevent something like this? What would stop a diatrophonies? What would stop somebody from rejecting the apostles' teaching, from pushing out outsiders, from kicking people out that don't agree with them? I don't know if you can totally stop anything like that. I I do know that this happens. And it's not just a, it's not a big church problem. It's not a small church problem. I've seen it in different forms in all kinds of churches. I have seen small churches that reject any kind of outsiders. And everything is about, you know, keeping things internalized. And and the cult of personality is very much around a single leader. And everybody accuses big churches of that. And then you go to a big church and you find out that, that, you know, That main leader that you think from the outside is like the biggest deal and they could be gone for three weeks and nobody cares. And then there's a single leader in a small church that nobody's ever heard of, but they are never gone because they're the most important thing ever in their own little kingdom. Uh, The rejecting of outsiders, rejecting of those who see things differently, uh, rejecting the apostles' authority. Now, that's not always obvious. Like, sometimes it is, right? Like, anyone who was a Christian when Joseph Smith came on the scene should have immediately said, false teacher. Anyone who was a Christian in Waco, Texas should have immediately said, David Koresh, false teacher. Because they were obviously rejecting the apostles' teachings. Sometimes it's less obvious. And there are people who draw followers to themselves, not because they preach the true gospel or because they, they teach the word of God, but because they speak to what people in that community want to hear. I, I heard of a pastor recently, and I, again, I hesitate to use that word, but it's what you would recognize that. so I'm just going to use the common word. Somebody who is entitled the pastor of a church, and he went and started this church in this community, and he did demographic studies and looked up all of these things and he tailored his message not to what God was speaking, but to what would be desired by the majority of that community. And when he had been in a different community, he had a different message because he was tailoring it to that community. So what's happening at Gaius's church is that this guy has, Diatrophanes has basically kicked out anybody who he doesn't like. He's rejecting outsiders. He's putting himself first. He is putting himself over the apostles' teaching, which is the word of God. How do you stop that? How should a church be organized? In general, the Bible does not give us a clear roadmap for how to organize a church. There will be people that disagree with me saying that. There are people who believe firmly that there is a very, very strict biblical way of organizing a church. I respectfully disagree. A couple of years ago, I did a deep dive, a personal deep dive, and I read a lot about church structure, a church organization, how churches are are run and put together. I, I read books and blogs and all kinds of articles from people of all different viewpoints. I still believe firmly that you cannot find one straightforward, this is how the church is to be structured. And I actually believe that's how God intended it and here's why. Because people are different, and cultures and contexts are different, and situations are different, and how any organization is structured when it's 50 people is very different from how you would structure an organization at 5,000 people. So I believe that there is a wide range of ways to structure organizationally a healthy church. But There are some general principles that are informative and, and I think, um, normative for Christian churches. The Bible talks about, in the New Testament, three types of leaders. It talks about an overseer. Now, there are multiple places where all these three types of leaders are either talked about or modeled. I'm just going to give an individual verse that I think speaks clearly to it, but it's far from the only one. An overseer, sometimes called uh, in older Bible translations, it's referred to as a bishop. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And the, the overseer or the bishop seems to be sort of the leading leader, you um, uh, You might say when uh, Paul was starting churches in the book of Acts, there was no question that Paul was the guy leading things. Uh, When they go back to the church in Jerusalem, James seems to be the clear leader of that church, especially later on in the book of Acts. Um, Timothy, when Paul was writing to Timothy, they had a plurality of elders, which we'll talk about in a minute, but Timothy seemed to be the lead guy. He seemed to be the bishop or the overseer. Then there are elders. Titus 1, verses 5 and 9 talks about elders. And they are leaders, overseers of the church. But whereas a bishop, um, it's a Greek word episkopos, talks about a single leader. This word elders, presbyteros talks about a group of leaders. And, and whenever it's a group of leaders, it's always that presbyteros. And whenever it's a single leader, it's always that episkopos. And if you don't care at all about Greek language, that's fine. I don't particularly either, but I think it's worth noting that the words for elder or elder, is different from the words for an individual leading leader or an overseer or a bishop. Then there's deacons. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, the apostles were ministering. They were preaching and teaching. They were uh, discipling people they were they were praying and praying for people, praying with people and and then there were these structural or organizational needs and so they said, hey, we need deacons, servants who will not serve us, but they'll serve the people. And so organizationally the deacons take care of these uh, structures. Now depending on what church tradition you grew up in, a deacon can mean very different things. Uh, the Presbyterians, use deacons, and they handle the practical ministry, um, charitable stuff, uh, facilities, that sort of thing. And you know, if you grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, the deacons often kind of run the church almost like elders, but they're not held to the responsibility of actually being elders. And I'm not trying to rip you if you're from a Southern Baptist background. Uh, admittedly, I have a lot of friends who are from the Southern Baptist tradition, and I do like to, you know, when we have these conversations, I like to poke them a little, poke a little uh, fun at them for it. We don't have deacons. We do have trustees, and I'll speak more to that in a little bit. But there's this idea that there are leaders of leaders, people who have kind of like the, you know, the the big picture leadership. And then there is groups of leaders, a team of leaders, and then there are people who are leaders in the church, uh, but they are not the overseers. They handle very practical leadership. So um, deacons, you know, in modern day, we might call them ministry directors. Uh, assistant pastors might really be more deacons than elders, uh, depending on the church. Like I said, there are these general principles, but no straightforward. This is how it has to be. So I have found that there are churches that call their uh, call a group of people elders and they're really not. They're really more like deacons. And there are churches that call a group of leaders deacons who really are more like elders. And then there's this word pastor that we put everything into. And and it's like, it's kind of like the word love. I love my kids. I love strawberries. Doesn't mean the same thing, but we put all of this emphasis into love. The same is true for for this word pastor. We put all of these eggs into one basket and we we say, well, he's a, he's a pastor, she's a pastor. What does that mean? And it means very different things to different people in different contexts and different situations. So I have found that there are people who are pastor so-and-so who really seem to operate more like deacons. And then I have found people who don't have the title of pastor who really do seem to operate as elders. And so I don't worry that much about what a thing is called. I worry much more about what a thing does. Now, Uh, The next thing, there's three main types of church leaders, and then there's three main forms of church government that you see practiced throughout church history. One is what we might call staff-led. It's led by a pastor, or it's led by a pastor and a group of assistant pastors or staff members. Uh, One is a council-led church. Uh, maybe you have a board of elders. Um, maybe all of the pastors are considered elders, but they're all equal. Nobody has authority over one or the other, at least on paper. Um, another system is congregational, where uh, the church decides everything by a vote. Uh, there's no single leadership. The P- the Plymouth Brethren churches really like this form of uh, government. Uh, there's congregational Baptists and different congregational churches that really emphasize this. These are more historical ways that these things have been played out. But here's the thing. It's like the question is, how do you stop a diatrophonies? How do you stop a bad leader? How do you stop a toxic leader? How do you stop an abusive leader? They have existed. Spiritual bullies, toxic leaders have existed in all three forms of church government that have been throughout the history of the church. They have existed in all three types of leaders talked about in the new testament there have been toxic deacons there have been abusive elders much to our shame and if you have ever felt abused by a leader i want to listen if you if you just need somebody from the church to hear and 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 just listen i'm totally willing to do that if anyone feels that i've in that and I hope I haven't we do have a way of dealing with that there's the pastor parish and there's the superintendent and I'll talk more about both of those later but I want to acknowledge now that if anyone has ever felt that I was a uh, abusive leader a toxic leader and I hope that's not true but if you have there are ways of dealing with that get more to that in a minute but like I said what is on paper is not often, in fact, often it's very different from what's in reality. Most people don't care how churches are run until it goes bad, and then they care a lot. You know, maybe you have a, dioph- uh, a diatrophonies and diatrophonies kind of leader, and you have, you know, there was this pastor that was the, you know, he was like ruling the church like a dictator, kind of like Diatrophanes was. And you say, how do we avoid that in the future? And so then everything is set up in reaction to that. How can we avoid that in the future? And then 20 years later, you have a problem with whatever new system you've set up. So again, we're just reactionary. Historically, I can tell you this has been true in America. That um, there's a, there's kind of a well-known story among folk story among pastors in the group of churches I grew up in about a pastor in the 60s. And the church had maybe 7,500 people on a Sunday morning. And then on Sunday nights, they had a prayer meeting that had been going since the dinosaurs, right? Like it'd just been going forever. But this prayer meeting was never well attended. You know, you'd have 75 to 100 people on a Sunday morning, and then you'd have 10 to 15 people at the Sunday night prayer meeting. But they would sit in the same order as if it was Sunday morning and the room felt very empty and it was just kind of a weird vibe. And so after the pastor had been there a while, he said, you know, let's try something different. So instead of everybody sitting in the pews and, you know, the pastor standing at the pulpit and then they prayed together um, awkwardly, one night at the back of the sanctuary, he just set up a circle of chairs, about 15 chairs, and everybody sat in this circle and they prayed kind of looking at each other. And, and before they were praying together, when they were just sharing, they were looking at each other. And, and he said it was really well-received. By just about everybody there except one person, and then that one person is like, "You can't do that, putting chairs in the sanctuary. That's not how it's been." And so then they get you know a bunch of crowds together, and so uh, you know the, they kind of force this vote, and, the, and they say, "You can't put chairs in the circle anymore." And the pastor's like, "How am I supposed to lead the church? Uh, you know, it's like literally my job to lead the prayer meeting. How am I supposed to do that if if you guys won't let me lead it?" And so in the next church, he set up as a response to that, a reaction to that, a system where the pastor had final authority. And so that solved a lot of the problems of the previous system and it created whole new problems. And so then I grew up in that type of church. And I think a lot of people in the last 20, 30 years did too. If you grew up in the church where the pastor had an outsized uh, leadership role, and then there were all kinds, like I said, new problems with that one. So what happened? In the 2000s, the big trendy thing was to have a plurality of elders. No one leader is dominant over any other leader. You have a group of elders who are qualified according to the Bible, and they will lead the church together. And that'll solve all of our problems, they claimed. Well, we've had 20, 15 years of these churches that have tried that, and they have just gone through a big round of scandals, That especially a certain group of churches that made a big deal about if we just got back to what they call biblical eldership, quote-unquote. If we just got back to that, that will solve all of our problems. And it turns out, it doesn't. I have found that no matter what the organizational structure is, no matter what type of leadership you have, whether you emphasize a single leader or staff leadership, whether you emphasize elders, whether you emphasize deacons, whether you emphasize no leadership and just do congregational whatever, that it doesn't matter. If you have sin among the people, it'll go bad. And you could have what on paper might be considered like the worst organizational structure. But if there are godly and humble men and women who just say, you know what? I want to seek Jesus and his kingdom. And I want to humble myself. And I want to submit one to another. And I want a spirit of love and unity. And then somehow it works. And everybody's like, ooh, how does that work? I don't know, but it does. Personal godliness is far more important than organizational structure. The issue with Diatrophonies was not the organizational structure, although that can be important. The issue was that he himself was given to this sin of wanting to put himself over others, himself over the word of God, himself over, over serving and, and love. He sought himself. and it, And it doesn't matter what kind of system you have or what kind of structure you have, you'll still see that throughout the history of the church. That creeps up. Now, that being said, you do need to have systems and structures. Do you know that the first really contentious thing that I had to deal with when I got to the church here uh, four years ago was over structures? And I had made a really big point um, personally. I said, I don't want to change anything at Faith on Hill in the first year. I, I just want to let the church be and and let's just get to know each other. But then we found out that they weren't doing really basic safety policy for the kids ministry. And there were a group of people that were up in arms that I would dare change anything, you know, just a a, a month into being the pastor at the church. And, and I said, look, I don't want to change anything, but we have to keep our kids safe. And this is a... Uh, just such a no-brainer safety policy to have. So I do believe in organizational structure. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that organizational structure doesn't matter. I'm not saying that there aren't ways that seem to be more biblical than others to run a church. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about who has access to who and that we shouldn't have things in place to protect people who are vulnerable. I absolutely do. But I will tell you this. You can put all the organizational structures you want. And if the leaders of the church are not seeking the holiness of God, it will not matter. So how is our church organized? We're sort of a hybrid. We have strong individual leadership. I I do have the ability to lead here in the church. Uh, I I get to, you know, I, I don't have to go get approval for what I'm going to teach. Uh, I You know, I can make decisions without going, oh, is every decision going to be second-guessed? I'm thankful for that. We also have a council. We have a leadership council who can say, hey, you did this, why? Uh, and I don't report to them, but I work with them. And we also have a strong congregational voice. I mentioned earlier that there are ways to deal with a leader, specifically me, if I was going off the rails, if I was becoming an abusive leader or a bad leader or a toxic leader. Here's how. The way, One of the main ways the congregation has a voice is what we call our pastor parish team. And this, this team is, is basically like a pastoral advisory team. And anyone in the congregation can go to them. And I'm going to tell you who they are. Dave and Janelle Centers, Mark Harris, Andy Hill, Greg Wilson, Yvonne Phillips, and they can go to any member of that team and say, I have a question about what's happening here. I have a concern. I I think something here is not right. And those people on that team have the right and the responsibility to, to meet together, to come with, to me and say, hey, what's going on here? And to hold me to account. And they have. I... I I remember getting an angry call from Yvonne Phillips. And if you know Yvonne, you know, sweetest lady in the world, right? But she was ticked. Now, what she had been told wasn't true, fortunately for me. And uh, I had some emails to prove it. But but we were kind of able to walk some things through. And um, I, I had to account for some decisions I had made. And I think that I made the right decisions. And I still to this day stand by them. But it wasn't like I just made them with no one checking in on me. We also have a superintendent who, in my mind, kind of sits in that overseer bishop role. The superintendent oversees our churches in Washington and Oregon. And if I were going sideways, he has the ability to come in and say, what is going on? He has the ability to come in and say, what's happening here isn't good. And he has had to do that, sadly, in some of our churches over the years. But we have do have systems in place. Is it perfect? Will it prevent Everything? but No. But we have them because they're important. So we have strong individual leadership. Our leaders are allowed to lead. I, I, I trust our trustees to take care of the facilities. I trust our youth team to take care of the youth ministry. It doesn't mean that they're just left to do whatever, but I, I let them, I want to let them lead. I'm thankful that I'm free to lead and, and make decisions without, uh, you know, having to be second guest every moment. But we also have a council, and the council is made up of actual leaders uh, who who oversee ministries, and then we have our uh, pastor parish team. I think kind of a key thing, and, and a friend of mine, Pastor Kurt Krager, who's in Boise now, but he's pastored all over the world, and he's pastored in all types of church structures, and he would admit that for maybe the last 10 years, he kind of had gone a really specific way in how he viewed organizational structures in a reaction to an unhealthy leadership system that he had been part of. And he said, after all that time and after all these different experiences, here's what I've come with. He says, is there a team? He said, there can be actual leaders, like a a senior pastor, a lead pastor who's the final authority. That's fine. But is there a team element to it? I hope there is. You know, I have a lot of ability and freedom to make decisions, but it's really rare that I make a decision without checking with the team. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And sometimes it's just a phone call to one of our leaders, especially if it's a leader who kind of has some knowledge in that area. Sometimes it's an email to the leadership council or to the pastor parish. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this or this issue has come up. What do you guys think about this? Uh, Sometimes it's not even an official leader. You know, recently we had something come up and I thought, you know what? I'm dealing with people who are very much out of my experience. And so I called up a guy in the church who had a very similar background and experience to this people who who had some uh, concerns. And so I said, hey, this is what's going on. You're very similar place in life and experience to these guys. How does this hit you? Uh, It's one of the reasons I get one pick on the pastor parish team and I, I pick Yvonne. Because I need somebody who's different than me. I'm a young pastor. I'm a dude. I need need a gal who's got some experience and not a dude and all this stuff. I need somebody who's kind of the opposite of me to, to give me different perspective. I love that team element that we have here with equal accountability. Now, I'm the only staff member, but I have been around bigger churches and I have seen where they'll talk a big game about having a team of leaders. And then what you find out is that, no, the accountability only goes... To the assistant pastors or the staff members, but the senior leadership is never held accountable. Uh, I've I've seen churches where there's an older pastor who talks a big game about oh we love how we have young leaders, but the reason he has a bunch of young people on staff, and by young I mean you know people in their twenties and thirties, is because they're they're not people who will challenge him. I've seen that. I've seen where. There's supposedly a board of elders who are there to work with the pastor and in theory hold the pastor accountable, but they're just a bunch of yes men and yes women. I've seen this kind of thing. There has to be equal accountability. A friend of mine was an assistant pastor at a big church in another part of the country. And their pastor had this whole thing about like, we are going to operate fearlessly this year. And so then he started making all kinds of changes and it was affecting the lives of, of people on staff. And my friend went to him and said, this isn't good. And he said, hey, we're operating fearlessly. Like we just all need to be on board with the changes. And my friend said to the pastor, what changes are happening for you? And, and he called him on it. There was accountability. And the pastor kind of huffed off mad. But the next day he came back. He said, I thought about what you said. And you're Right. And he put a pause on things and he halted. Why? Because he had the humility. I mean, so so many times you hear about these, you know, pastors, especially pastors of big churches, and no, they're all just about themselves or whatever. Here's a pastor of a big church, biggest church in his town, most influential church in his town. And somebody on his staff came to him and spoke a true word. And he had the humility to come back the next day and said, I thought about what you said. And you're right. That's a win. I love to hear that kind of story. Can somebody in the congregation speak up without fear? And that's why I think our pastor parish team is so important. I know I'm running long here, but what I th- I thought about this, the biggest thing that comes down to all of this is relationship. I know we talked about that last week, relational faith. How do you know if, let's say that you get a job in a different city and you move and you're looking for a church and I don't want a diatrophonies for a pastor. I want a good pastor. I want a good leadership. Sometimes the red flags are obvious. Sometimes it's really clear they're rejecting the word of God or they're rejecting outsiders or they're making it all about themselves. Uh, This last week, I saw a picture of a church sanctuary where uh, on the stage, there's this big banner and it's just this massive picture of the pastor and his wife. That's a major red flag. I'll tell you that right now. But the truth is, the only way to know is to have relationship. The only way to know is to have real relationship. Because there are a lot of people who are fans of a ministry or a church or a preacher or whatever. And they have no real relationship. And then they find out that things have been totally sketchy for a long time. And they would have known if they'd been there. If they had actual relationship. Instead they were just fans. I don't want fans. I'm not that good a preacher. But I want people who are co-working for Jesus with me. Brothers and sisters arm in arm. And I'm thankful that we have a church where people can speak up without fear. You might not always hear the answer you like. I'm thankful that we're a church that has equal accountability. I'm thankful that we're a church where leaders are leading. One of the things about who can be on the leadership council, they have to be leading a ministry. You don't want somebody who has no skin in the game, just wants their opinion and then they become sort of this like church boss, you know, a a bully almost. You want people who have actual skin in the game. I'm thankful for the church that we have. But I also know how much hurt and pain has been caused by the diatrophanies of the world, the toxic leaders who have abused their position. And I want to acknowledge that. And if you've been hurt, I want you to know that, that Jesus hurts with you. And if you just need to yell at somebody who has the title pastor, I don't mind. If you just call me and say, hey, Adam, I'm going to tell you my story and I just want you to hear me yell. I don't want you to say anything. I'd be willing to do it. And if and if you have felt that I have done something wrong in leadership, these are the ways that, that you could have that addressed without fear. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that God is still doing his work. That even things were going so badly there in that town or wherever it was, God was still doing his work. And people like Gaius were still faithful to do what Jesus had called them to do. And that's the, the only thing we can do. I've been a victim of poor or even toxic leadership in the church. I could tell you my story, except that I, I don't feel like publicly slandering some people. And I don't mean this church. I mean in in previous churches that I've been a part of in the last 20 years of pastoral ministry. I get it. But I'm so thankful that it's not about a person or an organization. It's about what Jesus is doing. And that's why I care so much about the organization of the church. Because I know that we can do more together than we can on our own. It would be better if Diotrophenes was a humble man who was seeking Jesus than a proud man who was seeking himself. Because then Gaius wouldn't be on his own. Nobody cares until it matters. Let's care about things now so that when things get bad, we have the strength together to withstand it. If I said anything that you feel was unclear, that you have questions about, that you didn't like, I have an open-door policy. Adam at faithonhill.com is my email. I'd be happy to hear you tell me uh, what I said wrong or whatever, because that's fine. I'd love for you to stay around with us. We're going to pray together and worship Jesus through prayer. Well, now that we have gathered around the Word of God together, I believe God's been speaking to us, and it's for us to respond. And as God has spoken to us about... Having health, spiritual health in the organizational and leadership structures of our church, I I think that it is a time to pray. I don't know about you, but I have heard about a lot of leaders who have fallen into sin in the last week. Leaders here in Oregon, leaders here locally. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for the people who were victims of them. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for the churches in our community that they would spread the word of God. So would you gather in prayer with me? First, I want to invite you into a posture of prayer, whatever that means. And then let's bend our hearts to the will of God together. Lord, we pray first and foremost for the victims, any victim, of an unhealthy church, of an abusive church of a spiritually toxic church or leader. Anyone that you think of now, I'd invite you to just name them and pray for them. Lord, I pray that you would do your healing work in their hearts. The church or a leader let them down, but you have never let them down. Lord, we do pray for those churches They're your church. They're not our churches. They're not that leader's church. They're your church. And we pray that you would do a healing work, a restoring work in those places. And Lord, for those leaders who have fallen into pride, sin, arrogance, toxicity, we pray that you would restore them because you have raised the dead. Would you restore our hearts? Lord, I also pray for churches in our community that are divided, I heard this week of a church in our community that is so split over COVID and politics and all of these things that are of the world, and yet they can't find a way to say, I love you, I'm here with you, to their brother and sister in Christ, the people that they'll worship with all for all eternity. Lord, we pray for healing for that church. Restoration, humility, a miracle, a testimony of you. And Lord, we pray for any who have had the witness of Jesus damaged by the church. That you would reach them fresh with the truth of our need for Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You guys have a wonderful week. We'll see you again next Sunday at faithonhill.com or on our Facebook page, 1030 a.m.